0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, but I'm joined by my co-hosts, Alisa and Yvette, both of whom are national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company.
1: Wow, with that lengthy disclaimer, we're very excited today to welcome Matt Ferraro, a senior associate at Wilmer Hale and a former intelligence officer at ODNI and the CIA. That sounds really spooky. He's also a prolific writer on national security topics and will link to his body of work, or I like to use the word, oeuvre uh in the show notes well and we're fresh off the heels of one of our aba national security law monthly breakfasts where he was our guest speaker thanks so much for coming in that was awesome of you um and the name of our talk was deep fakes and disinformation and for those in our audience who couldn't make it to the university club this week we'd like to bring the breakfast to you welcome
2: thank you so much it's an honor to be here
1: So, uh,
3: Matt, let's start with the basics. What is a deepfake and why is it a national security law concern?
2: All right, so a deepfake is a portmanteau of the words deep learning and fake. Generally speaking, it refers to media that takes a person in an existing image or video and replaces that person with someone else's likeness using artificial intelligence. And of course, deep learning is a subset of AI. More simply put, deepfakes are just really realistic fake videos, photos, audio, or text created by a computer. Uh, It's a national security concern in the first instance for the simple reason that a generally agreed-upon objective reality is central to any functioning democracy. We cannot govern ourselves or be at peace with one another, it seems to me, if we do not agree on what is true and false in some basic sense. More specifically, deepfakes pose a threat to elections – as I said in my talk earlier this morning, imagine a video of a presidential candidate appearing ill or doing something inappropriate like groping someone uh, that was released just a few days before an election or a fake video from someone claiming to be a state election official announcing a polling place has moved. Such videos would chip away at social trust, and that social trust allows democracy to function. And you can imagine a military scenario where fake video of the president announcing a missile launch against North Korea goes viral, triggering a response from the DPRK before it's debunked, or any number of other nightmare scenarios.
1: Sounds like a nightmare scenario, but in fairness to you, let's point out that happened via the radio back in the, what, 1940s? That's right. It's happened before, and this concern about foreign interference is one that was heavily addressed Mm. by the founders, including throughout the Federalist Papers.
2: I agree. Yeah, that's true. I actually remember uh, an old story of Ronald Reagan recording – Um, not a podcast, but like a weekly radio address, and he said something like um, uh, he's outlawed the Soviet Union and the missiles begin flying in five minutes, and this was a huge uh, uh, incident, you know, sort of an international incident, because he just joked about it. Um, Yeah, it was during the sound check. Yeah, was that right? Yeah. He was (laughs) just, you know, I
3: think they were setting the levels. Yeah. And he joked, and for whatever reason, that piece of tape leaked, and it was a huge international incident. And that wasn't a deep fake situation, but... The intention wasn't there to right. attack
2: or outlaw the Soviet yeah. Union. So, right? Yeah, it was a bad joke incident. And uh, <laughs> so it's, it's a good warning for all of us uh, in podcast land.
1: All right, so the questions become then very obviously what do we already have in place? What legal structure prevents this from happening?
2: Right, right. So, um, so there, several states have passed either civil or criminal laws against deepfakes, targeting either non consensual pornography or deepfakes that deceive voters. But uh, as you said, there's just a number of laws already on the books, both state and federal, that, w- that provide some causes of action for victims of, of manipulated media. Those are everything from sort of run of the mill defamation to economic torts, you know, uh, tortious interference with prospective business advantage, to copyright uh, and trademark protections, to in- intentional infliction of emotional distress torts to the securities laws which would protect against the use of disinformation to move markets or manipulate stock values.
3: But that requires litigation. Right. And you also need to identify a defendant. So mm-hmm. those are some challenges with getting any sort of remuneration or getting any justice.
2: Right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I I think that's right. I think that uh, other issues would be jurisdictional, right? I mean, if, the, if even if you identify the person, but he or she is overseas, it's not not always clear that you can get a hold of them or bring them within the, the writ of a court. Uh, there's also issues about if they're judgment-proof, right? I mean, if they just uh, have no money, you might not go through the trouble of, of suing them. Uh, that's, of course, where criminal law would come in. Uh, Virginia has amended its revenge porn law to make it a, a legal, a criminal violation for someone to create a deep fake non-consensual pornographic video um so that's you know where the state would prosecute and in texas they have it's not a wonderfully written statute but a statute that prohibits the use of deep fakes uh targeting elections and targeting candidates within a certain number of days before an election that's another area where of course the state would prosecute but yeah no i mean uh, to your point i completely agree i think it is a major issue um and it's um it's a limitation on, on the justice system, no doubt about it.
3: Well, it's, you're also talking about state laws, right? So, but the internet isn't confined to mm-hmm.
2: states, mm-hmm. right?
3: So, someone could download my humiliating deep fake video right. in California, even though it was created somewhere else. Um, you know, Is there going to be some sort of overarching federal sta- uh, standard that we can look to in the future?
2: So right now, six bills are pending in Congress that address deepfakes in some way or another. Only one of them, the Deepfakes Accountability Act, which was um, introduced by a woman named Yvette Clark, uh, Congresswoman Clark.
3: Very—I love her name. There you go. I don't know why.
2: It's an excellent name (laughs) uh, of New York. uh, And that would actually change the criminal law and make it a criminal violation— um, it's a complicated law, but if if a, a deepfake meets a certain number of criteria and isn't labeled as a deepfake, um, I, I'm not sure that's likely to pass. I think the ones that are most likely to pass are the ones that do things like authorize monies for research, uh, task various federal agencies to write reports or to coordinate with others. Um, or, uh, there's another one that would create a deepfake prize, a prize to sort of create technology that, that detects deepfakes. So those, I think, are the most likely to pass. Um, I, I'm not sanguine about a national standard. We can't get a national standard on data privacy or on cyber breaches, so I, I'm not sure deepfakes would, would be up there. But, you know, I think for the enterprising lawyer, there are at least opportunities using state law. And um, and I will say that in some sense, I think technology also holds a key, a key, to at least some of, this, some of these solutions using technology to help detect deepfakes, Um, or uh, in some ways uh, make it harder to be created and so forth.
0: And China has actually tried to outlaw deepfakes entirely Mm -hmm. without labeling uh, everywhere on that country's Internet. Right. Uh, Do you think that those efforts would have any similar traction at all in the U.S.? Would they work in our legal system?
2: So the short answer is no, I I don't think so. Um, As I said in my talk, I don't think China's threat— China face is not a deep fake problem, but a liberty problem. Um, you know, they, they have a situation where— There's that. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, as, as I understand uh, the Chinese Internet law, you can't use false personas online. You have to use true name. It has to be registered. Uh, all user accounts have to be registered back to an individual. Um, cl- clearly, uh, none of that would fly here. Um, I will say that in the laws that have been passed, there have been two laws in California, one in Virginia and one in Texas. Uh, They've sought to to get around First Amendment prohibitions by by narrowly tailoring them um, and providing exceptions. For instance, there's a law in California uh, that provides a private right of action for victims of non-consensual deepfake pornography, and it has lots of exceptions for Things of newsworthy value, if it exposes criminal wrongdoing, um, uh, and so forth. And so, you know, those are examples where uh, where I think some of the ideas uh, that are that are implicated in the Chinese laws could be applicable here. But I do think that it's it's bits and pieces and nothing wholesale.
3: Can you talk a little bit more about how the First Amendment might protect or not protect some of these kind of deep fake? Uh,
2: Sure. Uh, so, of course, you know newsworthiness, anything that that, that gets to uh, the core First Amendment protections of the press, are the least likely to um, to be regulated constitutionally. Uh, satire would be another example that's unlikely to be regulated. I think that the areas where the First Amendment defense is weaker is those areas where um, it is exploiting a person. So similar to like laws against revenge porn or other or other libel, not, you know, non-consensual pornography just in general, um, and also those that come to sort of market manipulation where, where money is made. And, you know, the securities laws in some ways are restraints on first free speech, but they're ones that we're willing to tolerate for the greater good of a transparent market.
1: And to your point, I mean, last week, um, and it doesn't matter what side you were on in the, the, the debate over impeachment right now, but I did find it fascinating that there was a deep fake of – Stepanic, the congresswoman from New York, mm-hmm. who appeared to be flipping the bird mm. uh, to people during the hearings, and of course it got retweeted by uh, many people. I certainly looked at it and thought, "Wow, uh, really, she shouldn't have done that." And then I started thinking about it. I was like, "Did that happen on right. the floor?" And of course it wasn't. Somebody pointed out it was a deep fake. Right. Um, and, and then there was that sort of discourse, that sort of open market discourse on Twitter, which was far too late for most people at night, I would point out. I think it was around 1130 that yeah. there was a clarification. Right. And i
3: you know, you said that satire is protected, but, you know, if people don't realize that it's a joke, yep. right? And they start retweeting it or reposting it, then, you know, you have a protected, expression that Mm -hmm. is actually tricking people into believing whatever it is
1: right the Um, nancy pelosi so-called drunk tape where she wasn't exactly
2: yeah that's a great point um and of course what's interesting about the nancy pelosi video is that was not a deep fake right that was just Mm -hmm. most basic kind of manipulation they just slowed it down but we live in an era where people believe what they want to believe and so those who were predisposed to think that she Uh, you know, was ill or intoxicated, believed it, and everyone else realized that it was manipulated. Or even if the other side believed that it it was manipulated, they thought it got to a core truth, right, that she was untrustworthy or something like that. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I I wish I had, like, a happy answer to all of these things. Uh, Axios had an article, and I thought it was quite right, which just said that we're going to get to the point where photographs and video are treated more like paintings, where just much more about your subjective impression. So to, to your point, you know, um, uh, Elisa, the issue of uh, Elise Stefanik, Congresswoman Stefanik, you know, if you're prone to think that she's crude or would do something like that, you're likely to believe the video. And if you're not, uh, maybe you're more likely to suss out whether or not it's a fake or not and, and believe that it's a fake even if there isn't countervailing evidence. Um, and I think that that's— I think that's a difficult situation, um, and so the the issue is what do we do about it, and there's not, there's not an easy answer. One thing I said recently um, on a different panel is that technology is about to push society off a cliff, and it seems to me, uh, so, and by society I mean our sort of like sense of truth and all of that, and it seems to me that it's sort of up to all of us to do our part to knit nets that might help brace uh, and break the fall. And one of those, some of those nets are things like being skeptical but not cynical, right? Like looking at that video and saying, let me just confirm that this is accurate before I retweet it, Um, but not, you know, going to the darkest corner of the room and saying obviously this is false or obviously this is Elise Stefanik being crude. Uh, Other parts are to just sort of affirm basic things like the objective value of truth, that there are things that are simply true, that there are institutions that are neutral, that can help render that truth, um, and that uh, and that there are people who act in good faith, and that not everyone is out uh, on it to get an angle.
1: Well, it sounds like we need to build a lot of literacy uh, for a lot of years. I think that's that right. This is, and then there'll be the next problem that we're not anticipating as we stand here today. Right. Um, so you talked a little bit about uh, the national security implications, mm-hmm.
2: but
3: you also spoke today in your talk about um, the effect on the private sector, mm-hmm. which... You know, is indirect, especially if it's a big enough shock to our economy. If the attack comes to a company that's sort of extremely um, integral to our our um, our country's functioning, can you talk a little bit about that and what some of the ways are that we can protect our financial markets?
2: Sure. Um, right. Great. Great question. Yeah, I think um, as I said in the talk, I think that there are lots of threats. To uh, to business, I think that disinformation is a is an ambient and growing business risk. I think it threatens reputations um, and valuations of companies, of CEOs, and all and all of that. Um, You know, I think there are examples of people who troll corporate brands, uh, spreading disinformation about the brand on Twitter and elsewhere. And this is just using basic disinformation uh, I think there are other examples where they they make money by pumping and dumping stocks or short selling stocks or conducting fraud and social engineering um, so what can be done about that well I think that there are some enforcement actions you know the SEC especially on when it comes to people who make a profit off of disinformation the SEC has broad enforcement actions against people who use fake tweets fake news releases and the rest of it to um, uh, to uh, profit from disinformation. Uh, there's always, you know, laws, defamation laws that people can bring lawsuits if, as you say, they can identify the defendant. I will say just like one very simple practical solution uh, or at least action. Uh, you know, the, the SEC has issued investor alerts uh, about you know pending threats. They did one on social media manipulation of stocks and things like that. I think uh, an SEC um, investor alert, alert about disinformation would be well considered. And I know I've spoken to some people that that at least in Congress are considering asking for something like that. So that would be like a simple step, you know, just notifying the market that this is a threat uh, without actually having to bring an enforcement action. So there's one.
3: Sure. And are there things in the upstream that companies can do in order to harden themselves against, you know, some of these threats?
2: Sure. Um, so I think that you know being aware of what's been said about your brand online is really important. I think taking a look at the mirror and figuring out you know, what are your vulnerabilities? Are there genuine lines of criticism that someone might make against your company? Are there particular areas uh, of vulnerabilities in terms of, you know, temporally and time? Is there a merger coming up where you're going to be most exposed? I think preparing is key, similar to the way people prepare for cyber breaches, having an incident r- response plan, thinking th- thinking through these issues and not to being caught flat-footed when they occur. Um, I think being in a position to talk to social media companies, uh, that's something you mentioned before. I mean, a lot of times the first action is to go to social media companies and try to get, um, you know, negative information taken down. You usually have to show that it violates the social media company's terms of service. So being in a position to do that. Law firms and others can help with that sort of thing. I think communication is key, being able to speak for yourself, that is a corporation, you know, speaking to the market, speaking to its partners and customers, using third-party validators who can help spread the the good news and counter any disinformation. And then if push comes to shove, actually litigating uh, or at least being in a position to talking to regulators and that sort of thing.
1: I mean, I imagine, too, one of the things that's come up um, repeatedly is sort of the vulnerability of elderly and isolated people to mm-hmm. a lot of... Uh, political messaging but also to deep fakes and I feel like we have organizations all over this town that are uh, advocacy groups for the elderly advocacy groups for um, maybe people living in rural environments who have less access to broadband less access to information I feel like engaging with those groups is probably not the worst idea getting their buy-in for outward messaging and education
2: that's a great that's a great idea and a great point I mean it is true that uh, you know society members of a certain generation are accustomed to believing um, sources of information, right? This is back when there were a couple channels on the television. There were a couple newspapers. Uh, and so they're more likely to believe statistics, statistics show disinformation. Uh, this is sort of, you know, the paradigmatic uncle who sends you the crazy email. Um, it's
1: not paradigmatic. It's real. It's, like it's real. Really it's really happening.
2: Um, and I, interestingly, I, was at I a, have those relatives. Uh, right? And I was at a, a conference on deepfakes just a couple of weeks ago, and there was a representative from, I don't remember the name of the organization now, but it was like, uh, you know, uh, we reach out to the silver generation and try to get them smart.
1: AARP on. is one of the big ones, right? Runs, that would right? Be a that wouldn't be a bad one to tap into. And e-
2: exactly. And again, I think that it's important to be skeptical and not cynical, right? I mean, because I think that the the, the the downside of all of this is that you just throw up your hands and you say, I can't believe anything. They're all a bunch of liars. Because
3: um, that's a win for some of the people that, that are That is a win,
2: right. Yeah, well, that, and the
1: founders counseled that we cleave to each other, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they said stick together, you know, as a country – Find a central truth yeah. push back on because then they had you know a threefold threat at all times you know Spain, what England, France, same thing
2: right, right, um, uh, founders, smart guys, and um, you know i I, I think that um, I think that's exactly right, and I think that you, you know, to your point that's like the liar's dividend right that's the benefit to the liar because everyone just says, well i can't trust anything, so you know this video review uh, um, doing this terrible thing is, oh, it's just clearly a fake because you would never do that. You know, that's, that's the downside. So, again, I think the goal is to be skeptical and not cynical. It's not easy, but it's the goal.
1: We're skeptical. We're not cynical, <laughs> <That's> right? <laughs> we are skeptical. Um, well, anyway, Matt, it's great to have you here w- with us today. We really appreciate it. Um, you've given us a lot to think about. And to our listeners, you know, we are obviously the message here is educate your family members, set up these nets that he's talking about. Um, think about volunteering in terms of civic education, um, these are really important things to protect our democracy against uh, these kinds of threats, which, you know, f- unfortunately have metastasized and are growing.
2: Mm mm-hmm. hmm. You're here. Thank you so much. This is such a wonderful honor.
1: And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the
3: podcast of the AVA Standing Committee on Law and National Security.
1: Remember
2: to subscribe to
1: this podcast by clicking on the subscribe link on your app of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and a lot of other media.
0: You can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash Security or in the notes to this podcast. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, where you can follow us or like us on Facebook. We welcome your feedback.
3: Thanks for listening, and we will join you next week.